everybody. Welcome back to another bald movie. This week, Jim and I are talking about The Majestic, a 2001 romantic period piece directed by Frank Darabont, uh, written by Michael Sloan and starring Jim Carrey, among others. Now, you'll recognize Mr. Darabont's work if you don't recognize his name. Uh, directed The Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption, The Mist, and for better or worse, he's responsible for AMC's The Walking Dead. I'd say early The Walking Dead. He, he he helmed the entirety of season one and a little bit of season two, and then he got sacked for wanting to make the show too good. <laughs> and then he sued him. And then he and, sued yeah. him, and it's glorious. And 11 seasons later, he's still executive producer, <laughs> cashing them checks. Uh, it was written by Michael Sloan, who has a very thin resume outside of this movie, but I also read that he was a high school friend of Frank Darabont, so there you go. Uh, Jim... It had been about 20 years. I saw this at the theater. I did not remember any of it. If I if I had remembered more of it, I wouldn't have selected this film because honestly, I'm trying to get away from talking about politics. And this film is so oh, yeah. is fucking political. Uh what do you think? Uh, uh I still really liked it. I'm I when I first saw it, I it was about the same time that you saw it. Uh and I was a big fan. I am kind of a sucker for these uh self-righteous speeches about you know freedoms and uh justice and things like that and Mm -hmm. this movie has a really good one uh even if it's a little silly in places but uh i really appreciated that and i liked there's something cheesy about the whole thing and i definitely felt that on second watch here uh more than i did the first time Mm -hmm. but there's also something like comforting about that innocence especially in today's environment where you can just look at it and and there's nothing there to really feel too bad about, yeah. which I'm kind of okay with right now. Yeah. I think it's a great little film that tells the tale of a fictional version of America where bad people sometimes get away with tarnishing, if not outright destroying American ideals, but they're always defeated by well-meaning, good and decent people. Uh, it's very inspirational, aspirational a bit heavy-handed and kind of vaguely yeah. naive in the same way that uh, like the West Wing is and kind of was. Um, it, it reminded me a lot of It's Wonderful Li- a Wonderful Life. Um, about halfway yeah. point, I put that in my notes. Like, this is so... He is... he is Jim Carrey is so channeling Jimmy Stewart from A Wonderful Life. And then I read Roger Ebert's review, and he's explicitly comparing this to the, the work of uh, Frank Capra. Um, and like I said, it's funny cause, uh, I, I, we didn't pick this film to be political. If, if the way we do this is we have this big spreadsheet of like the greatest movies in the past 40 years by box office and Oscar performance, we kind of randomly sc- scroll through it and be like, what do you think about this? And when we both find one, we agree. I think the hook on this one was like, uh, it's a, we were talking about like, uh, the plight of movie theaters. Like I read an article where AMC's warning that they're not going to make it through this closure, and we're like, oh, let's pick a thing about, uh, you know, something about cinema in trouble and the resurrection of cinema. And we're like, ah, the majestic. And it's mm-hmm. it's about the fucking commies and the Red Scare. <laughs> <laughs> sure is. Um, but it's also got just a terrific cast. You'll recognize a lot of Frank Darabont players. You got uh, Jeffrey DeMunn, uh, Laurie Holden. Um, and I just think Frank Darabont is just so good at directing and tugging your emotions. There's a couple of things where yeah. I walked into some scenarios, arms crossed, openly skeptical. There's no fucking way you're going to pull off this and make me feel anything. I ended up sobbing through two of them. And 
it also just the, the look of this film it's just perfect it's a rock solid version of a colorized modern frank copper film that you'll that you'll ever see like the cars main street the costuming and dress everything is just so meticulous to put you into this particular again lightly fictionalized american small town uh on the west coast do you want to I, I thought maybe we could if, if people are like me and they'd forgotten the kind of general thrust of this film we could do a little synopsis yeah let's do it so the majestic takes place in the early 1950s at the height of the second red scare an aspiring hollywood writer pete played by jim carrey finds himself in the sights of the house committee on un-american activities because he attended a socialist meeting in college because of a girl he was into the studio is in an uproar and demands that he renounces communism and name names of fellow communist sympathizers uh, he has no list of names, but that's fine because the committee's got a half dozen uh, that they've come up with in their own. He just has to sign a statement and everything will be fine. Uh, his girlfriend leaves him and distraught, he takes a long drive at night, loses control of his car, goes off a bridge. Next day, he wakes up on a beach, suffering complete amnesia. He's discovered by the folk of a small town who take him in and help him get back on his feet. Slowly, the town becomes convinced that Pete is in actuality Luke a wholesome all-American type who they thought they lost in a battle in World War II. Soon Pete is adopted by an entirely new family, including his father who adores him, his ex-girlfriend, and the entire town is kind of revitalized by his miraculous return from the dead. Inspired by this, Luke's father announces he's going to resurrect the Majestic, the now dilapidated but formerly glorious theater that for many years was the beating heart of the town. But looming in the background is the question, will Pete regain his memories? And what will the town do when it finds its miracle is a misunderstanding? Let's talk about the movie. And from here on out, it's Spoilerville uh, for this 20-year-old yeah. movie. Maybe a good place to start is the cast. You mentioned okay. liking Jim Carrey. I do, too. Talk about that. Yeah, I think... Uh, so my love of Jim Carrey started with some of his now shittier movies. Uh, uh -huh. Ace Ventura, Dumb and Dumber. Uh, Dumb and Dumber's still okay. Were but, you an In Living uh, Color fan? No, I was not a Fire Marshal Bill fan uh, until after I had seen him in like Ace Ventura. Yeah, I mean, in Living Color is now problematic as hell, but I really enjoyed watching it. And I was old enough that I had a TV in my room, and my mom would not approve of me watching it, but it was on kind of late. I think of a weeknight, so I was able to to, to watch it. And yeah, Fire Marshal Bill. Uh, mm -hmm. I forget his Conan the Barbarian gender bent version of that. Uh, I I enjoyed all that. And Ace Ventura, yeah, all of his dumb shit, I really yeah. was a big fan of. Dumb and Dumber. I, that was that was my start with Jim Carrey. But then I saw stuff like uh, Eternal Sunshine, A Spotless Mind, uh, Truman Show, uh, t even t to a degree like Twenty Three or whatever the hell that numerology uh, film he did was. And I really started to appreciate him more as a dramatic actor. Uh, Man on the Moon, yeah, that that was great. Uh, and I. I yeah, I, I was surprised, and I actually became like a real fan of Jim Carrey's. Uh, and you know, in later years, I've fallen off that for various reasons. Well, I, here's a reason. I yeah. think that had it not been for what seems like a severe mental illness that he's battled mm -hmm. throughout most of his career, he might be a Tom Hanks type. Yeah, he could. Comedy uh, drama does it all. Yeah, he'd just be like the this generation's, or I guess the you know, like you know, Tom Hanks is still around. He's still making movies, still still awesome. But <laughs> but you know, the he could be the the Gen X or even a millennial version of Tom Tom Hanks. 
Uh, but the man's got a lot of struggles. Uh, if you've seen the, the, the documentary, uh, what was that? Uh, uh, something in me, uh, Andy and me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, and in, in his public statements, he doesn't make any bones about it. That Like he, he has a lot of struggles with depression and, and anxiety and, and, and maybe even, you know, more diagnosable things, but, uh, he did have a really, really successful run um, of, of both comedy and drama, and, and then a lot of nothing. I, he was in the new. I, I hear he's really good in the new Sonic. For oh, for what it's uh, worth, Doctor Robotnik, sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I haven't seen him in that yet. No, I probably won't. <laughs> Everyone tells no, me that so- Sonic is good, but I'm just like, is it though? Is it really? Yeah. Uh, but Jim Carrey is amazing in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. This movie's not not funny. There is some lightly comedic parts. Yeah, I really enjoyed the uh, uh, everything about the small town politics, the the obsessive uh, obsession over Robert's rules of order. Okay, and, and Jeffrey yeah. Dimon kind of presiding over all that, and he does really well with that. Uh, but he's just solid. He's and just like Jimmy Stewart, just like Tom Hanks. He does. He disappears in the role and mm-hmm. does what you need him to do. Jerks to tears, provokes the laughter, <laughs> and I think maybe that's the most amazing accomplishment of Jim Carrey. Is that he could disappear into any role after Ace Ventura? Yeah, like because it's such a, a standout. Like this is a thing that he is. He's a funny man who does weird faces. Yep. And then he goes from that into these dramatic roles. And yeah, you do sort of lose him in those characters. Indeed. Um, I want to talk about Martin Landau, who does just a lot of interesting, really great work. Uh, I thought this was particularly amazing casting because there's several times in the movie. So Martin Landau is his adoptive father. Uh, he thinks he's the, you know, Jim Carrey's Luke, his son that's returned miraculously from the dead in World War II. Um, and he's got this, uh, there's a couple points in the movie where he and Jim Carrey stand side by side with like a big toothy grin on their face. And like, I feel like he's cast for that alone because when they both smile like that, they both have this enormous toothy grin and there's a clear family resemblance. Um, and it's very touching their relationship, uh, this old man, there's a lot that they give Martin Landau a lot of great scenes. Like uh, there's that scene where Luke, he first thinks Luke's come back and he, you know, he's got the gold star that he's displayed proudly in the theater as it collapses around them and his son's picture. Uh, and he takes that down. And then there's some shit that shouldn't work. Like when he goes to the graveyard to show, you know, this town, uh, the, the town setting is amazing too. You've got the small town that's lost like 60 kids in world war two. And they're all kind of like this, this Paul cast over the town. Um, and the few that return are maimed, you know, they got like, what's that guy named? It was a Billy or Joe, Bob, Bob. who has yeah. got the, the, the hook arm now. Um, yeah. And, and he takes him there and, and you find out that, uh, not only is Luke a war hero, he's got the congressional medal of honor. And Martin Lando's going to get this out of the grave that's got this little glass shrine of all these these Medal of Honor. He's going to pin it to... And I'm just like, there's no fucking way this is going to work. But it kind of does. And it's all because Martin Lando and Jim Carrey are amazing. Yeah, yeah, they are. Um, and I yeah, I, I don't know. I won't talk spoilers quite yet. But, really? But um, okay. there are a few scenes that I want to talk about with them that really worked for me and maybe shouldn't have because they're so cheesy. Uh, but yeah. What do you think of Lori Holden? Because as soon as she showed up, I wrote, very excited to see what the ugliest crier in the known world is going to do with this little bit of melodrama. Because I thought she was fantastic. Me too. I've actually liked her in everything that I've ever seen her in, except for the fucking Walking Dead. 
<laughs> she has a completely different demeanor in this. Like it shows what yeah. a good actress she is because like in the walking dead, she's this very harsh, stern character, um, sort of, you know, no, no soft edges. Um, mm -hmm. in this, she's very different. She has a little bit of that, uh, shit what's her name Andrea quality mm -hmm. to her in a couple of scenes yeah. but there's a softness there's a warmth underneath it all yeah that like a foundational warmth in this character that does not come through in The Walking Dead um that, that here she's able to effortlessly display and she does she has almost a completely different voice in this too like uh -huh. it's not just the accent it's the tone of it it's the timbre of it it's sure I was actually really surprised by how different her performance is here than in anything else I've seen her in yeah, and she's uh she's impressive as a character stand uh, point because she hasn't just been you know sitting and mourning her dead fiance. She's gone out and you know gone apparently to law school and she passes the bar. Mm -hmm. She becomes a lawyer in this movie. Uh, pretty fucking impressive for small for for a gal from small town America in the early fifties. Yeah. Uh, but she's amazing. There's like uh and she's uh her and Jim Carrey are a very cute couple. That part where they go to like this town festival and she's got this fantastic red dress on uh the the again like that part where where they had a lighthouse and she comes down with like this uh incurable case of the hiccups and I'm like oh fuck this movie there what the hell I was I was 100% fuck this movie right there I but, it never it never won me over that felt didn't... That gimmick felt to me like the bullshit gimmicks of the dog running up the hill to ring the bell that they talked about in the beginning of the movie. Right. I was the, like, this is bullshit. The hiccups never come back either. You're right. There's that one scene where they make a big deal about it. I wonder, when I when I was thinking about after this movie, I was wondering, because they make it a point that she kind of goes along with the delusion. In fact, that's the whole town kind of like knows that this isn't real, but... Wouldn't it be cool? Like, you know, everyone's kind of skeptical, but like, man, wouldn't it be amazing if? Yeah, it's and, a story of hope. And I wonder if like the hiccups was her little addition to the fiction that made things work. Because it never, ever comes up again. It's like she just wanted an excuse to kiss him and see if it was real. And right. So these are like psychosomatic hiccups that she blames on one thing, which is like when she gets flustered or feels like a strong emotion or something I, I couldn't tell exactly what triggered the hiccups uh mm -hmm. in the story of the movie but you're saying the psychosomatic thing is actually something entirely different where she needs luke to be luke because the town wants luke to be luke and she wants luke to be and luke. she's playing along with it yeah she wants this to happen as bad as anybody does and i think so yeah and so like she invents the excuse the the kit the the thing to to get the kiss going so but I don't know. It's it's a wild kind of shared delusion that the that the the whole movie's got. Did you see who played the actual Luke? I did, and I think it was a mistake. Was it okay? Because I was yeah. delighted to find out it was Matt Damon. I, I mean, it's cool, but I immediately recognized his voice, and all I could see in my head is Matt Damon's face, and <laughs> those two people look nothing alike. <laughs> Jim Carrey looks nothing like Matt Damon. There's no way the photo that they show of Luke Trimble is a photo of Matt Damon in any world. Yeah, but, like, was Matt Damon Matt Damon back in 2001? I like, think that's he only was pretty Matt Damon. That was only four years after the Goodwill Hunting. Because, to me... I mean, he blew up in Goodwill Hunting. He blew up in Goodwill Hunting, then he had Talented Mr. Ripley. He had Saving Private Ryan, where he was a bit, kind of a bit player. Yeah. Uh, I guess the same year, Ocean's Eleven came out. Because, like, Ocean's Eleven and The Born Identity is when he went to, like, Super Duper Star. So sure, I'm like... Sure. He's a character actor at this point. 
and he's playing a young all American. Like if you're looking for a young all American man, I know. Let's get oh, Matt okay. Damon. But yeah, well, he doesn't look anything it didn't like. Age well. Yeah, it he didn't, didn't age well. They, they don't. Even, they don't look alike. Um, but I, I don't know. I thought that was cute. Um, let's talk about a little bit about the filmmaking. There's a lot of really fun. Well, love- you, you missed a couple, a couple of people that I wanted to note real quick. Oh yeah. Um, right. Speaking of Walking Dead, you've got Cliff Curtis as the the evil but handsome Prince Khalid. I think I was about name. to mention this is this whole fake Hollywood film that's got him and Bruce okay. Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and Bruce Campbell is the role in the Introverted Explorer. Uh-huh. Uh, did you recognize Sean Doyle? Who's Sean Doyle? He's uh, Federal Agent Saunders. You might know him better as uh, Aaron Wright from The Expanse. Yes, I was wondering <laughs> who the hell that was, and I, I looked up yeah. almost everyone, but I forgot to make a note of that. Yes, playing yeah. a officious son of a bitch in, in both roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, those are the only notes I wanted to make on cast. Okay, uh, so pivoting to the filmmaking, um, a lot of the fun in this film is kind of like this uh, love letter to Hollywood filmmaking um, and kind of poking fun at it, too. Like, you can tell that Darabont has a... Uh, his opinions on Hollywood produ- producers and their interference. And I think it's super fun to think about this in terms of like the walking dead and what a fucking debacle that w- had to have been like the AMC, the AMC guys like interfering and cutting the budget and mm-hmm. you know, Oh, you made uh, you made the pretty good show s- six episodes with uh, X amount of dollars. How about you make uh, 16 of them for the same amount of money? And he's like, uh, no, well you're fired. <laughs> Um, but I really liked all the, they had a lot of real movies that they reference and and have like, um, you know, American in Paris and whatnot, but they had also the, the sand pirates of the Sahara or whatever. And Mm -hmm. I just really liked Bruce Campbell swashbuckling against Cliff Curtis. It was a lot of fun. Did you see the Indiana Jones gold idol pop up? I didn't see the idol, but I couldn't help but think Indiana Jones during this entire movie. Yeah, yeah that one that the Indiana gets in the very beginning of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah. The one he swaps I, at the back. They were fighting over nice. that at one point. That was a lot. Of, that was pretty cu- uh, cute. Um, the the scene that really evoked the wonderful life the most, uh, or the one I first thought about it, is the scene of him drowning. I thought that was incredibly well staged and, and, and dramatic. Yeah. Um, absolutely it was and it's kind of everything building up to that like i uh, there's one shot when he's got this monkey and he's coming out of the bar and he gets in his car and they're showing kind of a reverse angle up at jim carrey and the moon's in the back and everything else is just completely black and it felt like one of those old hollywood films there was something magical about it uh, about that moment and it's a dark moment you know yeah he's uh, about to potentially go commit suicide but uh yeah i, I really thought they've nailed the feel of like a Frank Frank Capra film. Oh yeah. And like even the setting where they, we talked about this a little bit, but that town, you know, you're, I'm thinking about like, uh, cause it's not, when I drive through small town, Ohio, uh, a lot of these towns are doing this thing where they've lost a couple of kids in the, the recent adventurism over in the middle East. And you see their portraits hanging in the town square. And then some of them have gone to where like every person that they've, that, that's been killed, in war in the last hundred years, they start hanging up their photos. Um, but I was thinking of like, if my hometown of like 60 kids out of the graduating class were just dead, like what a Paul that would cast. Um, and I don't know if yeah. any town, like if, if that's based on any real story, but like, there's a couple of like really moving moments where like the town comes together and, uh, you know, they're, they're this, they're so beat down that one of them returning from the dead, uh, 
it kind of gives everyone a shot in the arm. There's a couple of realistic, like some people have like reverse survivors guilt. Like, uh, you know, 59 of these guys didn't come home. This one guy comes home, like, fuck him. You know, that's like, like, uh, Bob. Where did you say Billy? Yeah. No, it's, it's Bob. It's Bob. It, it, I was surprised, like, how shitty the town treats him. Like, they're, it's amazing when Luke comes back and he's got this fucking literal parade uh-huh. of people lifting him up on their shoulders and and marching him through the town square and playing big band songs and organizing meetings and getting together in the diner to tell him how amazing he is. Bob's standing there with no arm, having come back from the war, and everybody's treating him like shit. I like, yeah, I, I get that he's a little busted um, and not physically, uh, emotionally. But, man, I bet the, the town doesn't seem to have given him much uh, in the way of support during during his time after the war. Well, he's part of the Paul, because the way I interpreted that is, like, he, even though he's alive, he still is representing of everything they lost. Like, he's the living embodiment, you sure. know, loss of innocence, loss of his arm. Um, and, you know, he's kind of this grim reminder that walks around reminding them, of, oh, my God, I lost my son, I lost... And whereas Luke's the opposite. Luke is like hope rekindled. Luke is, you know, like fucking the resurrection and the life. He's he's like, man, promises of Jesus fulfilled right there in the middle of uh, small town America. Yeah, I feel like it's a matter of perspective. Like, oh, yeah. What they should have said about Bob is he came home. He's persevering despite uh-huh. his injuries. There's a lot of hope there, too. And if they had maybe shown him a little more support maybe given him a parade yeah. for having come back he might be an entirely different person and this town might be an entirely different town yes um but it did leave i, I thought there was um a lot of really great scenes where like yeah, yeah the town's too depressed to like even go through with the war memorial that they planned and you know jim carrey turns out around they had a really nice moving ceremony where everybody who lost someone came and was honored in town i thought that was really great um there's a couple interesting things about television versus movie that haven't aged very well uh like martin landau's character gets up and gives this stirring speech like you know because because the majestic is amazing it's a magical place i wish my town had one i uh it's it, I, I think that the alamo draft house if your town is lucky enough to have one is kind of similar to what this might have meant or felt in the, the 20s and 30s but, like, when he's sitting, like, you know, why would anyone watch a little box? Just because it's convenient? Because you don't have to get dressed up? Because you can just sit there alone in your living room without other people around? I'm like, make it a real strong argument for TV here, <laughs> Martin. I, yeah. I, I'm not seeing the downside. But then again, you know, a quintessential movie experience with the crowd is respect you know appropriate respectful during the quiet parts and ra- loud and raucous during the the cheering parts is you know i, I was thinking uh avengers endgame i would not want to watch that for a first time in a sterile living room i'm glad i was there to hear everybody cheer and whoop and yell and uh, yeah or any star wars movie um, yeah any any big movie and, th- and that's the thing like you got to remember also in the 50s television looked like shit Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I believe it was still black and white back then. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, you wouldn't get the same experience even, uh, from a, just a film perspective. Like it wouldn't look as good at home. Yeah. Uh, no. nowadays we have, you know, 60 inch screens where you can essentially get the same picture, uh, if you sit close enough and there's no difference. Sound systems are great at yep. home. And zero chance of assholes that, you know, you, you can't throw out of your own house if they, <laughs> 
<laughs> if they exist. Make your own popcorn. Yeah, make your own popcorn. Don't pay five, five six bucks for it. Um, yeah. I thought this film... And also, the oh. hilarious thing... Well, okay, so it's hilarious, and it's also... Uh, I, I could see a certain sentimentality for this. Um, if If you didn't want to see the one movie the Majestic was playing for the multiple weeks that it was playing it, you were kind of screwed on seeing movies because that was the only theater in town and it only had one house. So that was all it was playing for like a month. Uh, and there's a certain like community, I think, that would develop around that naturally, right? Like everybody has seen the same film in the town. Yeah. And so everybody has these touchstones of like pop culture. Yeah. That bring people together, you know? Yeah. Um, I, there's a couple of other things I thought were really smart about the the way the plot functioned because this could have I mean I'm not gonna this is pretty melodramatic pretty maudlin pretty saccharine but it could have gone like ridiculously so uh, but like a couple things like uh, you know amnesia I don't know if it's a thing but it's a well worn movie trope and it does it, it works pretty well here and I just thought that like this is the one point where. I, t- I buy that lo- this guy, Pete, just goes along with it. Because why wouldn't he? Why would he ever question the nature of his reality? Like, mm-hmm. he's stepping in the shoes of, like, an idolized hero. Uh, he's got a beautiful ex-girlfriend who's been carrying a torch for him the whole time. He's got a loving father who did a good job raising him and instilling values. He's beloved by the community. Like, other than... And he's a stand-up guy because when he starts having memories of his former life, he fesses up to them almost immediately. Um, with one yeah. with one and, and that's the thing like um when it became clear that he was going to remember who he was in the exact same scene that his dad has a heart attack and dies i'm like there's no fucking way this is going to be emotionally resonant uh-huh. but it was i don't know it was beautiful because he almost he almost told the truth right then and there yeah. and then he quickly did the moral calculus and it's like there's no good to come of you know, I'm I'm so happy he didn't tell him. Yeah, and it's, and it's I just... even I even thought he covered it well. Like you know, Dad, I'm not. And then he pauses. It's like I'm not ready to let you go. And then I'm like, oh God, I'm I'm a mess now. Uh, Jim <laughs> Jim Carrey's jerking the tears. Yeah, it is a great scene. Um, I like the scene where he tells uh, Adele, you know, the truth as well because he's not he's not caught yet. Um, but he wants to get out ahead of this as he should, and and not for some like. Oh, strategic calculus, right? It's just like, well, this is the thing I need to do because this is the honest thing. And it's interesting to me because she says, I I knew. Um, And somehow I always knew you're so much like him, though. And and I couldn't help but think, like, why is he so much like him? Is it just uh, a circumstance of fate? Or was the town basically grooming him the entire time into the Luke Trimble that they remembered? Because he sort of started with this blank slate at the beginning. And we know he's a very different person at the beginning of the movie before he has his accident. So it was interesting to me, like, that cause and effect there. Yeah, and, I, like, they, they had a super... They, you see the picture of the guy, and he superficially resembles Jim Carrey, maybe a little bit fuller in the face. But yeah. I was thinking, though, throughout the, the movie, like, I guess if you hadn't seen him and you hadn't seen recent pictures and people change and all this... But, like, the, I thought the movie... does smart things like they have uh his future father-in-law kind of like in the half point of the movie take someone aside and say yeah i love this too this is great it feels good but like even if he is who we think he is he's been gone 10 years what's he been doing what life has he had like the the movie isn't stupid it asks the questions but it, it it point it paints a picture of like people 
going along with this because it, it's it's so happy. It's making everyone so feel so good. And even yeah, like you said, when uh, Lori's Adele character, that felt right when she says, you know, I deep down always knew you don't you don't you you look like him, but you're not him, and this and that and the other. Um, mm-hmm. And, it, the, you know, so a lesser movie would have turned this into a big, bitter acrimony. Like, how dare you mislead me? And I can't yeah. believe you played me for a fool. And oh, I feel but like it was a very she's a you know, she's not an 18 year old girl. She's like in her 30s at this point. She's got a career. She's been through school. She took it in stride. I mean, she was de- appropriately like devastated and hurt, but she knew it wasn't, you know, Pete's fault. Uh, yeah. I just, I thought that scene was great. And also. You know, Darabont could have had uh, Lori Holden, ugly cry, snot bubbles, (laughs) blood vessels bursting in her face. And uh, they played it, you know, they brought it back a little bit. No, no need for no need for uh, Walking Dead style overacting. Just 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 do do what you need to do. I I will say it kind of sucks when everyone finds out that he's not Luke and they immediately turn on him because he is Luke for all intents and purposes. Like I said, they've groomed him to be Luke and he's done all these amazing things for the town, mm-hmm. right? There's this symbiosis between Luke and the town, uh, between Peter Appleton and the town where Peter becomes a better person because of them. They become a better town because of him, regardless of his true identity. And they just turn on him on a dime when they find out that this man who clearly was not deceiving them. Mm-hmm. They they pushed him every step of the way. They were pushing him to be Luke, right? Mm-hmm. And every step he was saying, "Look, I'm not sure about this. I don't know if I'm this guy." They wanted so desperately for him to be Luke that when they turned on him at the end, I felt a little disgusted by it. Yeah, but I thought I did too. And I, I but I started as I was watching. I think the, the film again the screenplay does another smart thing where. The people that were the most disappointed in him were like largely the hangers on, you know, like the people that were really important to him, his father, uh, the usher, uh, 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 Adele, they were, you know, like, like they all confess like, well, not the dad because he, he died, but like they, the, the, those people yeah. central to his life said, you know, we always knew this and we always hoped, but you know, like they, they, they weren't mean to him and they didn't run him off the rest of the town. Like, cause that's like, all he was to them was a symbol. And as yeah, soon as that yeah. symbol was destroyed, then they're, I mean, it, they didn't run him out of town. Right. They just like, it's no longer fun to go to the majestic and pretend like we're a town of the 1930s anymore. Because we're a town of the '50s, and all of us have lost people, and they're not coming back. <laughs> and so, I think at that moment, the the rest of the town is unsure because they don't have this relationship, this deep relationship with him, like Adele or any of the other people in the Majestic do, where they're unsure if he is actually going to uphold the values that Luke did, right? And yeah. so when he comes back after having given this blistering speech to Congress or or th- this committee, whatever it is, yeah. Um, he comes back and he's greeted with open arms by everyone. I yeah. That's important. Cause he did right by Luke's legacy and Luke's memory. Um, yeah. which maybe this is a good time to transition to the political side of this. Um, okay. unless you want to praise more of the filmmaking. Cause again, you could, this, this, this thing is shot amazingly. The colors really pop the way they light the majestic just makes it look like this magical portal. And it, I just can't say enough about the reveal because the way it was synchronized, uh with the film and the 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 music swelling coming from the film and what was happening on the screen and how that dovetailed into his realization and his father died like that just worked 
if anything else, if anything had been anything about excellent, that scene would have been ridiculous. But they knocked it out of the park. And then uh, the theater itself reflects all that, right? Like if you yeah. look at the state of it, um, the, look at the state of the majestic. Look at the state of uh, Harry Trimble. Look at the state of the town at the beginning of this. And when Luke comes in, and they they get a glimmer of hope, and they start fixing up the majestic. By the end of that, you have sort of this. There's a one to one connection between luke or i guess peter appleton's memory and this theater's uh restoration which you know kind of ends up working out in a weird way where it's sort of like exactly the opposite of what they wanted it to happen uh Uh, they wanted him to remember his life with them instead he remembers the other life but the town comes back to life as the majestic does i think you know all this stuff is so like cheesy if it were less well constructed but i thought it really worked in this movie Oh, I, I, I agree. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Got your happy price, price line. All right, so I think this is a good point though where we can pivot to the political. Um, there's a couple. I don't have a lot to say because you know the overt commentary is extremely overt. Yeah. Uh, it's so funny to watch. Not funny, I guess funny in like a black comedy kind of way. Uh, Roger Ebert's review where this movie came out in the wake of 9/11. And the country is preoccupied, I guess, or like the, the liberals were preoccupied in the country uh, about the extrajudicial trials of, of terrorists and whatnot. And how kind of like quaint concerns like that seem uh, in the backdrop of current American poli- uh, politics. Yeah, as our country tears itself apart. Yeah, like <sighs> the thing is, is like this this stuff and like the West Wing and uh, the uh, is it feels a historic that. I don't think this America existed every anywhere. If it did, we wouldn't have the problems that that we do. Like, you know, one of the reasons there's so much racial animosity is this country has just never stopped hating black people. And then it found more pe- new people to hate. Uh, and the only people that ever kind of reconciled with is like, you know, I talk over on the Swiss Bold side, like, you know, German Americans, Italian Americans, Irish Americans eventually can become cool to America because they just blend in. But if you got any pigment to it, you're fucked because you're always going to be different than other. Like if we at various points in history, like after World War One, after World War Two, where like black soldiers served with distinction, we're all ever like, hey, you know what? Hey, we were wrong about these 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 folks. They can be just as valiant and heroic and patriotic as anybody else. We probably wouldn't have the continued racial animosity, but we can't for for whatever reason. So like when I see this small town American and they're like, you know, uh, it's also funny that like you could provide for a family as an usher at a theater. How about that for like a you know could, could you is it is like you know the, I doubt it. And then I, I see stuff like uh, whenever I saw I was watching Mad Men and like the early seasons they had an elevator operator. You know like his his whole job was to push buttons for people because God help us if people push their own buttons. Like yeah. I presume that person provided for a family with that career. Um, but it's, it's, it's gone. Did it ever exist? Um, 
and you know, you've got this like this soaring speech. This is uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to assert my Fifth Amendment rights. I'm gonna assert my First Amendment rights to say whatever the fuck I want because this is America. And um, is this alternative? I was gonna say, that? is this alternative history porn good? No, I, I mean it's it's never good. Like I, I don't, I don't like trying to misinterpret history um but it's certainly something that everyone does to a degree right i mean even in your own memories of your own history you sort of recontextualize things as you age and gain more perspective so i I don't know if it's like intentionally damaging or if it's something that just happens i just feel like sometimes because i i remember um for example, we watched the post, right? Like so this was like early on in the Trump administration, and it seemed like the moral of that movie was if you read newspapers and you hold your government accountable, the institutions will not fail you. And 3 years later, the institutions largely have failed us. Um mm. I I I just cuz cuz sometimes I think that um, well, we're we're certainly not holding them accountable. Well, like I would say we haven't done any of the things that some of those films advocate for. Yeah, because like you know, the post literally is not a historical. It's it's actual depiction of what what happened. Um, but yeah. I don't know because sometimes like if you, you this this majestic kind of gives us a false sense of security that like you know America's um, better than we not only better than we remember, but better than it ever was. And like you know, regardless of uh, you know, like when when uh, all all people have to do to change the course of history is give an impassioned speech, and then people of good character and goodwill and open hearts and charity will support them, and you'll carry the day. Um, I still believe, like you know, I remember also going back to a bygone era when we. Uh, where we did that uh, Christmas time review of It's a Wonderful Life. Like I said, yeah, I wish there was more aspirational films like this. Um, but we have these films. Uh, you know, I forgot about how good that The Majestic was. And it came at just the right time when, you know, uh, the next round of civil liberties that we had were being jeopardized. They're not, they're, they're certainly are, they're not a vaccine like I was, would hope they would be. You know? Yeah, I, I agree. Like they're, there, there's no easy vaccine. Um, the, the, you know, the, the cost of liberty and justice is ever, uh, forever being vigilant. So like, you're going to see these movies all the time, but you're also going to see counterexamples. I, I think like, that's kind of why I like these movies is because of the aspirational nature of them. Like mm-hmm. I, I watch a lot of movies and a lot of media, um, <laughs> You go on social media, you go on any news site, and you can see all the bad shit that's happening. You can see all the reasons that you should feel really shitty about the current state of things. Yeah. And I don't know that movies like this try and sort of plaster over that and hide it. I think what they're doing is saying there's another way. We don't have to operate in the modes that we're operating in. We can choose something better for ourselves. And it takes people like a Peter Appleton changing their mind, standing up for what's right, and yes, it's a fairy tale in that you can get up in front of this committee and make a speech and suddenly everything is is cool for everybody around the world. But at the same time, if everybody were doing these things and everybody felt that way, we'd be a lot better off. No, I... I so I, I don't know. There's there's something hopeful about it. 
No, and uh, I think that's because because the opposite is just you give in to despair and apathy, and that just if, and it's so easy to do that. Yeah, yeah. So I think on in balance, these types of movies are good. Uh, but you also got to realize they're not. You know, like uh, uh, President Bartlett that was not a real person. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, his his policies weren't real. His cabinet wasn't real. His his administration wasn't real. Uh, Jim Carrey wasn't a war hero. Uh, he didn't he didn't destroy McCarthyism with a fiery speech in front of Congress. But it'd be nice if he was. And what 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 can we do uh, ourselves as citizens to kind of be the Jim Carrey we want to see in the world? Uh, so yeah, I think you're right. It is it is good. It's just. It's a trip to watch stuff like this, or it's a wonderful life in in view of modern political debate, and think, you know, Jesus, what what happened? Because it does seem this yeah. it felt like such a great capture of that 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 Capra feeling because you had these guys. I don't know what it is. I call them the greatest generation. Uh, these men and women they come back from overseas and they're just determined to make the world a better place. Uh, probably because of the horrific experiences in war and seeing how bad things can get if you let things get off the rails. Um, yeah, I do think there's nothing better than a, a speech that puts powerful villains in their place. Yeah. But also, it's a little silly to be reading from the Constitution, literally reading the First Amendment. When, yeah. To these people who are legal scholars, come on. Especially come on, since, like, like it's a five-minute speech in which the chairman of the House on Un-American Activities Committee is just banging the gavel, out of order, yeah. remove this man from the room. Like, you know, like that. All the bailiffs are out on lunch, apparently. Yeah, that, that shit would have been shut down so fast. He would have gotten, he wouldn't have gotten through the first three no. words of the First Amendment. Congress shall establish, now get him out of here. Yeah, <laughs> so... uh and then the yeah. one guy's like, oh, no, let him talk. This is great for us. <laughs> like, come on, man. It's, it's so cheesy. It's yeah. it's real dumb, but it's inspiring. Yeah. And it was also some funny moments, too. I liked the, his uh, his horniness defense. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's a perfectly, perfectly cromulent defense to uh, being accused of being a communist, which, as Roger Ebert pointed out, wasn't against the law either. Uh, yeah. So... That's and the... apparently he wasn't a communist, was he? He was a socialist. No, no I don't. Confusing. E- I don't even think he was that. Well, I think he was just. Uh... Yeah, he wasn't. But the meeting he went to was right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Which don't don't get us started about confusing communism and socialism. <laughs> sure. Uh, the, uh, it's interesting the framing device where like the first of the movie, it's like he's. Um... I wish they did something more with that. Um... Because I thought, like, it would have been cool. I don't know. Maybe this is even stupider. But I thought it... Or more stupid. Excuse me. Uh, <laughs> I thought it had been cool if at the end where he's... You know, these executives are making this lurid pitch for his movie. If he would have, like... You understand that he was going to come in and say... Uh, you know, tell... Actually, tell the story he just went through. You know, like... Because it's kind of unbelievable. has wild details. But I don't know. Then the movie's already... Do you think this movie is too long? No. No, I don't. I don't. I, and as a matter of fact, I quite respect it for not wasting my time because there's a large chunk of this movie where we're just focused on the town. Mm-hmm. Um, and the communist stuff just completely falls off the radar for like yep. an hour. Oh, yeah. And I think that's perfectly appropriate. There was nothing to do in that. All they needed to do was say, okay, they're going to find him eventually. Yeah. Throw one or two clues in there where they trace him down and you get the whole story. And they did that. Like, I, I that's the other smart thing is they had the FBI kind of like as this constant menace. Like, you know, you went through the whole, you had this whole hour you were setting the town, but like every 15 minutes, 
on an upbeat, you'd cut to the sinister agents, like looking at death certificates or looking at, you know, uh, uh, uncovering, you didn't have a headline about the Hollywood commie hot on the trails or whatever. Uh, oh, inside the town though, right? Like the newspapers and stuff. Would be, yeah. Would be, you'd be seeing the articles there. Yeah. But they but, don't really cut back to the, the chase very often. Yeah. 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 It's just, just enough to keep the tension. Like, uh, there's yep. this undercurrent of tension and Darabont does that really well too. Like I've always been amazed at like the green mile, how you got the central thread of like this, like semi, uh, the supernatural thing happening, but then you've got, also got long 30 minute stretches of just like prison life or the relationship between the guard and his wife or, um, same thing with Shawshank, you know, like that was a movie about a man escaping from prison, but that's, that's just scratching the surface of what it was about. He's, he's a really damn good visual storyteller. Yeah. Uh, I, uh, appreciate his work. Uh, do you have anything more you want to say about the majestic? I got two just silly points that I noticed. Hit me with them. Uh, so Jim Carrey decides he's going to fix up the majestic and the first thing he's going to do is haul this monument that I, I want to say Roosevelt, uh, gave to the town. Yeah. Uh, after, you know, 60 of their kids died. The fallen soldier monument. And he takes them down. He takes everybody down in the basement, the oldest men in town, the oldest ones he can find. And he, he <laughs> uncovers it and he says, uh, hey, Harry, grab the other end. And I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> of a, of a two ton yeah. solid, uh, oh, yeah. bronze statue. Yeah. We're going to do that. Uh-huh. We're going to lift it out of what, how did it get down there in the first place? I didn't see any doors big enough for this thing. Uh-huh. They crawled in through a fucking window. <laughs> uh, I, I just couldn't believe that he asked these old guys to pick up the other end of this. Like they're going to haul it out themselves. I thought when that was happening, that the gag was going to be, they're going to melt that down and use it to rebuild the majestic. Like, <laughs> oh, you know, God. like this, this town is like hidden in something shameful. And then I'm like, how are they going to square that yeah, and especially since yeah. the next scene you see uh jim carrey swinging off this gleaming metal skeleton of the the majestic they just welded i'm like well there you go they've melted it down and they've recast it and oh, then i was actually genuinely surprised and shocked when it turned up later in the film all right that's uh, point one other, yeah the other crazy thing to me is like this celebration that they have where you know he tries to play the piano and all he can play is this ragtime or whatever <sighs> Uh, that Emmett's taught him. Uh-huh. It, it supposedly taught him, right? Yeah, um, yeah. When he starts playing that ragtime, suddenly everyone in the town is a a really good swing dancer. Like, sure. Like, f- 500 young couples come out of the wings. I don't know where they're getting all these young men that they've lost uh, so many of, but 500 young couples come out. They're dancing. They're jumping on tables. They're swinging each other over their shoulders and under their legs. It's a yeah, it's fucking, fucking It's American bandstand scene. that just breaks out, yeah. yeah. In this small town, everybody's a, a skilled swing dancer. It's, a de- okay. de- it's what the devil's music does to you, Jim. Uh, I thought, okay, uh, point two B, the fact that you can play piano that skillfully in a certain style, but like Gershwin, when you can't even follow along the notes when someone's playing them one by one, that seemed kind of yeah. weird too. Like, for example... I, I would have liked to see another try at it after he's playing his ragtime stuff. Yeah, like James Hetfield. Give him another go. Uh, guitarist and Metallica shreds, but he's also cl- a classically trained guitarist. He can play that Spanish flamenco stuff and all that really complicated. T- I just feel like it's yeah. one thing if like I've never got past just plucking at a guitar. I can play a few songs like if you ask me to play, but but if I was like a, a lead, you know, concert guitarist or pianist, like I think I could play 
Ragtime and Gershwin and Chopin and it, you know, it's like mm-hmm. it, it's just weird that he could only play very complicated, fast paced jazz. Yeah. So I don't know, like Marty McFly when he went to the the uh, the undersea dance or whatever, he was able to play right. the slow stuff, right? He wasn't uh-huh. just like, "What is this? What? What? I don't, I don't understand what these notes and chords are." Yeah, you know, if you can identify chords and no progressions, you're good. Yeah, I would think. I would think again if you're as proficient as Jim Carrey was in this movie. Well, all right, that wraps up our thoughts on the Majestic. We're going to be back next week with two, also 2001, Vanilla Sky, which uh, I've actually not seen, but Jim says touches on a lot of kind of virtual reality is something real it's not kind of some the westworld vibes that we've been dealing with we thought there might be some good synergy there so we're going to come back next week uh with our thoughts on uh, vanilla sky i'm very excited I, I'm, I'm loosely aware of what this movie's about um actually i'm not because i had no idea it was like science fiction at all i just know yeah. that tom cruise's face is, gets fucked up at some point <laughs> it does uh yeah. So yeah, we'll be back next week to talk about Vanilla Sky. Hopefully you got enough time that you can give it a rewatch or maybe your first watch and uh, discuss it along with us. Until then, I'm your host, Aaron. And I'm Jim. See you next week. Yeah.